Thank you, Shirley. And I want to welcome you all again this morning. Glad that you're here. And, um, you know, I, I used to, I remember when I first learned that uh, for John Wesley, who's kind of credited as, as the founder of Methodism, he was an Anglican priest in, uh, there in the 18th century in, in, London, in England and, and went to Oxford. And then there was this renewal movement within the Anglican church that became known as Methodism. And long story short, that's part of the reason we're here today. And uh, it, it was strange to me the first time I learned that this day, All Saints Day, was his favorite church holiday. And I thought, are you serious, John? I mean, of all the great holidays in the Christian year, you know, why would this one be your favorite? And so it, it kind of just struggled with that one for a while. And I'm beginning to realize why some people love this day and why it's their, some people's favorite day. And part of that involves is just remembering that we're not alone, that we're not the first people to follow Christ, and we won't be the last people to follow Christ, that we're surrounded by that great cloud of witnesses. And somewhere in there, we find our home, and we begin to be inspired. You know, our imagination kind of ticks up, and we go, oh, okay, I see. That's what's going on here. Every time we take communion, you know, and we say, and now, you know, we're surrounded by the heavenly host all the angels and the archangels and those that have gone before. And now, remember, Christianity, we, we believe some pretty wild things. Okay, this is not a tame, this is not a tame religion. We believe, as I said earlier, in the resurrection of the body. There's somehow that we have, you know, through John's revelation and other things, that we have glimpses into a life when we are no longer here in the body. And it takes great faith to hold on to the promise of resurrection. Great faith. It, we get Our faith is chipped away at. We live in such a culture of cynicism, and I'm, all, I'm naturally a cynical person, so it's just sort of constant exercise of faith. It's like going for walks or lifting weights or going for a run or doing crossword puzzle to keep our mental <laughs> integrity there. We, this, this is such a great exercise of faith, and part of the way we do that is by gathering. And by hearing God's word and responding to it and coming to the Lord's table and remembering that we are not alone. Uh, Billy Abraham, who uh, was a, a, a Methodist from Scotland, who's probably the most well-known theologian uh, that's been at Perkins School of Theology over at SMU uh, all these years. And Billy Abraham has this great little scenario where he's talking about he, he's a guy that lost his his son and uh, and then wrote a book about it about a year later. And he talks about, he says, you know, when we when we remember that we are a people who believe in this audacious claim of the resurrection, he says, it's sort of like if I were, if someone were to tell me today that in my retirement, I was going to move to Romania, he said, I would kind of start making some adjustments. You know, I would learn the language and I would learn the currency. I would kind of figure some things out. I would try to figure out what the customs were like. What do they eat for breakfast? What do they eat for dinner? What do they drink? What happened? You know, I'd try to get ready for all that stuff. And he said, if I if I would be motivated by such a mundane thing as that, how much more when we remember our final home with Christ, would we not begin to ready ourselves for that existence? And so, of course, we're doing that now. Every time we open our mouths to worship and every time we pray, and we bring our children through these rhythms of spiritual formation. It trains us. It reminds us that we are getting ready always for a home that we have not yet arrived, at which we've not yet arrived. Right? Christ said, I, you know, I, I go and prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I, I would tell you. 
uh, but I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may also be. Heaven is simply with Christ. Heaven happens on earth when we're with Christ, and heaven happens forever when we are with Christ after we are no longer here in this world. And so for me, that's the joy of All Saints Day, is, is remembering that we are not alone, that we are preparing ourselves always to live in a home uh, that we haven't made it to yet. And so we remember those saints who are no longer with us. But also at All Saints Day, it's a good reminder that all of us have been called saints. And so as I was thinking through, you know, the passages of Scripture for this day, uh, which rotate every year, but the ones that we were given this year as I was looking through them this week, one of the texts that we had for this week was Psalm 32. And I thought, Psalm 32, that just doesn't really seem like a very good All Saints Day text. You know, I was looking through and I kind of went through some other ones. And I got thinking, I was like, no, Psalm 32 is a pretty daggum good uh, All Saints Day text because it, it, to me, exhibits some of the things that saints know. So I'd like to spend just a couple of moments talking about uh, three things, at least three things, that saints know. These are three things that saints live by, that they swear by, and that we, uh, as we come along, we begin to learn. They become a part of who we are. So, so the text that Shirley read for us, um, a, a beautiful text. This is one of my favorite psalms. This was a psalm that... Uh, Augustine of Hippo, who was a, a bishop of the church and lived in the in the fourth century, he he had this in, on his deathbed. And you know, Augustine had lived a wild life and uh, had had only later in life been converted and then was a, was an incredible force for the kingdom. But uh, on his deathbed, he had some people paint this psalm on the ceiling. And so when he was dying, he got to read. He could see this the words of this psalm on the ceiling of his where his bed was. And uh, I always remember that when I'm when I'm reading it, and it's a beautiful. Uh, psalm, but uh, it's it's a celebration. It's a psalm where no direct prayer is prayed. He doesn't ask God for anything. He simply celebrates all the things that God has done, and he begins to commend the people of God to, hey, jump in on this. Look at what God has done all around us. Now, hop in on this because it's the real deal. And so the first thing that the saint knows is forgiveness. Uh, saints are well-versed in forgiveness. David prays, blessed or happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose transgression is carried away, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord counts no crimes and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The saint is well-versed in forgiveness. And when I say well-versed, I mean they really know it inside and out. They know, they know God's forgiveness inside and out, and therefore you begin to see them sharing that in the world around them, and they are well-versed in forgiveness. It's the giving and receiving of forgiveness that they're well-versed in. And when I say well-versed, I think of, you know, it's kind of like if you ask me, like I have, I have friends who like certain TV shows or certain novels or certain books, and they ask me, it was like uh, somebody asked me the other day, well, you know the reference in Star Trek, are you a Star Trek fan? And I said, well, I've seen Star Trek. I kind of have a general understanding. Like I can give you the old Spock thing. I, got, I know who Spock is. But I'm not well-versed in Star Trek. In other words, if you make an offhand reference, I'm going to have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, I'm not conversant in Star, in Star Trek. Uh, now, if you quote something from Larry McMurtry's novel, Lonesome Dove, I will, hear, I will hear you across the county, and I will come running, and I will be able to fill in the next line. I'm conversant 
in Lonesome Dove. I should probably be conversing in other things, but I'm conversing in Lonesome Dove. So that's probably what my kids are going to put on my gravestone. Dad was corny, and he always talked about Lonesome Dove. Uh, but I'm conversant in that story. And we as Christians, we become conversant in the scriptures. And I think saints are conversant in forgiveness. They speak it, just they can quote it without having to look back at their notes. You know what I'm saying? They live it out. Saints are well-versed in forgiveness. And because they're well-versed in forgiveness, it makes possible the next thing that saints are great at, and that is saints are people in whom, as the psalmist said, there is no deceit. Right? There's no hidden, tucked away closet stuff in the saints. Why? Because they're better and holier and they've never done anything wrong? No, because of the first thing. They're well-versed in forgiveness. So they know it's no, no use in holding on to stuff. Remember the great psalm, uh, the, the, another prayer from the Psalms, you know, uh, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any wicked or deceitful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. One of the best prayers. It's a searching prayer. It's inviting God to just come in and shine the light everywhere. Come in with the mag light and look in every corner and lead me in the way everlasting. So see, saints aren't afraid of that because they know that forgiveness is the currency with which we live. So even when saints become well-versed in forgiveness, and they're people in whom there is no deceit, it still follows that they're not completely free from trouble. Even when we learn forgiveness and we have our lives completely cleansed and, and there's no deceit left in us, we still don't get out of trouble in this life, as big of a bummer as it is. And so the psalmist continues to pray, and he says, Let everyone who is godly Offer a prayer to you, God, when, when you may be found. Surely the rush of great waters will not reach him. The rush of great waters. Like he still knows the life is full of the rush of great waters. They shall not reach him. He says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble and you surround me with shouts of deliverance. Saints know where to hide. They know where to hide. Do you remember playing hide and seek as a kid? You remember people that always found the best hiding places? You know, anybody ever play like hide and seek in the church building and know all the places? I remember Nick Pipkin and I one time were playing hide and seek at a lock-in and all the lights are out and everything. And we thought, hey, we'll get smart. We'll go on the roof, you know. And so we we did that. And uh, and I'm sure that was all kinds of liability issues, you know. And, and uh, well, obviously it was. And, and But nobody could ever find us on the roof. Because no one would look there. And I would be like, oh, and it was really dumb and dangerous now I look at it. I would not get on that same roof today without a harness. Uh, but we would go sit out there and we'd just wait and talk and look at our watches and be like, hey, is anybody ever going to come out here and look for us? But they could never find us. You know, and saints are like that. They know where to hide. And they know that the best hiding place is in Christ, is in God, that there is a place for us to hide. And sometimes when trouble's all around you, the best you can do is just hide. It's like little kids when they're being carried around by their parents. You know, I was talking to one of the football games the other day, and uh, he's sitting there in dad's arm. And I said, hey, buddy, how's it going? And he looked at me, and he just buried his head in his dad's chest. Like, I don't know you. I don't feel safe around you. I'm 
getting closer to dad, right? I'm going to hide in dad's shoulder. And that's how we are. You know, when we come up to trouble, we don't have to run away from it, but we hide in the presence of God. It's incredible the flow of this psalm, like what happens with David. And there's such such a wordplay in the Hebrew about with this word cover or hide. And so it kind of moves through. You know, it's like um, what happens is David first, he, he covers his inequity. If you go chronologically, he says, you know, I tried this where I just cover it up. He's like, I tried to hide my stuff. And it, I, things were not okay. Like my bur- my bones were burning, right? I was on fire. Things were not working out well. And uh, he said it was like it was like I was in the middle of summer and there was nothing to drink. I mean, we get that out here, right? No no rain. And uh, David tries to cover his iniquity, his sin, and then he learns the joy of the Lord covering his sin. So he tries to cover it, can't get it done, and then he learns the joy of God covering it taking it away, and then finally he discovers a hiding place in God. Uh, in, in his mercy, God hides away what we unsuccessfully hid so long, and he welcome, welcomes us home to a new place where we can hide uh, with him. So it's just all the stuff that we try to cover, and God finally covers, and then we find, last of all, that we have a home where God covers us, and he welcomes us I want to close with the story of of Moses that many of you will remember. And and Moses' life was full of trouble, right? Uh, Moses knew these things about God. He knew that God was worth talking to. uh, And he knew also that life was full of trouble. And he was among a people who were always causing trouble. And so Moses has this great divine moment where he receives the law from God, right? He gets the tablets. This is God revealing himself like he's never done before in human history. And he speaks to people with words they can understand in their language that teaches them how to live so they don't tear each other to shreds. And he brings these down. And what does he find? The golden calf, right? The famous golden calf. And everybody's just got impatient. And they said, you know what? We're tired of this God. He's not acting quick enough. So we're going to make some new gods. We're going to be efficient. We're going to be practical about this. And let's do it. I'm sure there was a street back in that bunch that did that uh, and got through it. And so Moses, is, he's fed up and he's like, I don't know what to do. And he faces trouble. And so what does he do? He knows, like David, that you go to God, that there's a hiding place there. So he goes to God and he says, God, I don't, you know, don't don't tear these people up. I know you're a merciful God. Let's figure this out. And he talks through the whole thing. And then finally, when there's a new plan, and Moses is interceding for the people and he asks God, you know, show yourself to me. Show me your glory. And God begins to speak back to Moses. And he says, I will do the very thing that you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, show me your glory, I pray. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you the name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. For no one shall see me and live. And the Lord continued, See, there is a place, Moses, by me where you will stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. You see that image of God hiding Moses, right? Just hiding him away in the cleft of the rock so he passes by and gets to see a glory, but it doesn't destroy him. That's the hiding place that God has prepared 
for us. But may you find that place wherever you are today. Amen.